Let's, uh, let's pray, and then we're going to look at Psalm 19. Father, we thank you for your word, and, and the psalm we come to is, is all about your word. We ask that you would give us wisdom this morning, that you would build our confidence and our faith in what you have given us in the scripture. And also, Lord, that you would give us a, a greater amazement with your creation, that we would worship you for the picture that we see in creation in the heavens and that we would glorify you for the clear words that you have given us through those holy men who spoke for God moved by the Holy Spirit as you breathed out your word so bless us this morning give us eyes to see and ears to hear we thank you in Jesus holy name amen well God has given us two forms of revelation he's given us nature And he's given us his written word. James Montgomery Boyce calls these the the little book and the big book. The little book and the the big book. The heavens are the little book. The heavens don't seem like the little book. I'll explain why. And the written word of God, the Bible, is the big book. The, The heavens serve as a basic summary of God's existence and God's power The Word of God gives us details about who God is and who we are and how we know Him and what we were created for and how we can be rescued from sin and what what eternity will be like. And it's important that we understand both of those. So we're going to begin this morning then with the heavens, with natural revelation. Psalm 19, the first six verses say this, The heavens are declaring of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from their heat. So let's consider the heavens for a couple of minutes. This is a picture that is called the extreme deep field image. NASA developed this picture over a 10-year period of time. It's 342 images taken of the same spot in space by the Hubble Space Telescope. This represents about 100 hours of exposure time. The dots that you're seeing here are not stars, they're galaxies. The full-size image shows 10,000 galaxies, at least. Those galaxies number in the, the, have a different number of stars, but there are certainly trillions of stars in this image. Now, if you imagine standing on the surface of the earth, standing out in the country where there's no light pollution, and looking up at the, the night sky, no moon, so the stars are brilliant, how big a piece of the sky does this image represent? This is how big, the yellow dot. It represents about a quarter of the size of the moon. So as NASA focused the, the Hubble's telescope out on a, a dot that for us is, is the, the size smaller than a dime at arm's length, they counted over 10,000 galaxies containing trillions of stars. Now you imagine then what the vault of heaven around us, 360 degrees, contains. There are people who are estimating now that there could be two trillion galaxies containing um, 
somewhere between a septillion and an, and an octillion stars. That's one followed by 24 zeros and to one followed by 27 zeros. And so when Scripture says the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is telling of the work of His hands, this is what it's referring to. What I think is so amazing here is that there are only just a small handful of galaxies that are visible through binoculars or with the naked eye, and even then they appear as stars. It wasn't until telescopes were invented that we began to see a few more. And then in the 1800s and the 1900s, we began to see more. And then in 1990, the Hubble was put up there. And if you remember when they first put it up, they had some focusing problems. They got that figured out. And all of a sudden, we started seeing galaxies after galaxy after galaxy. You can, you can go to a website. If you just do a Google search for Hubble images, you can go to a NASA page and they're putting stuff up all the time. And it's, it's astounding. It's astounding what you see. So there are galaxies, there are stars, there are planets numbering beyond our ability to comprehend. This is our own Milky Way. In a couple of years, NASA is going to launch the James Webb Space Telescope. That'll have five times the gathering image of the Hubble. I found online, it's, it's not much to see. It's just a yellow blur on a, back, on a, on a black background. I found a, a, a picture that Hubble has of a galaxy that's 32 billion light years away. They're estimating that the universe could be 48 billion light years across. But, of course, that's because we're using these instruments to measure it. When we get a bigger instrument up in space, we might discover that it's thousands or millions of times bigger than it actually appears to be. So these images that we see of the Hubble, of other pictures, what, what, what does every single astronomer see? What does every observer see when they, they look at pictures like this? What they see is the glory of God. What they see is the work of his hands. That's what the universe reveals. The heavens, it says, ceaseless, ceaselessly speak. Verse 2 says, day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. It's almost like it's describing this flood of light that is coming upon the earth 24 hours a day. It's unmistakable. Of course, most of the men and women in science would deny the existence of God. They'll insist that all of this came about by accident, that it's all just kind of a big fluke. But, you know, the universe doesn't care. It just continues to praise God. It just continues to sing forth the praises of God. Psalm 148 says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all the stars of light. And the universe obeys that. The universe says, God is. The universe says, God must be worshipped and, and acknowledged. Romans 1.20 says that the universe provides rock-solid evidence for mankind. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, which speak of, namely, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. 
So why did God create the heavens and the earth? Genesis 1 says he created the, the, the heavens, the stars, the moon, and the sun to give us times, to give us seasons. And it also says he gave them for signs. Signs of what? Not the silly things of astrology, but signs of the existence of God, signs of his power. Now think about this now. Isaiah chapter 40 says, Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their hosts by number. He calls them all by name. I, I, I can't begin to imagine what an octillion is. One followed by, I think it's 27 zeros actually. It, it's, it's beyond my ability to comprehend. A trillion is really be, beyond my ability to comprehend. And God knows them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his, of his power, not one of them is missing. So God has named every single one of the stars in the universe, not just the galaxies, not just the stars, but the planets and the comets and the meteors and the moons and everything else out there. Every atomic particle he ever made, he knows the exact history of that from the moment he spoke it into existence to this very moment. If, if you could just go out into anywhere in the universe and pick out an atom, God could tell you everywhere it's been and everything it's done and everything it's experienced, everything it's been a part of. Not one of them is missing. He would know. So it's kind of laughable that Adam and Eve when they sinned would try to hide when God can keep track of trillions upon trillions upon trillions of stars two people hide in a bush thinking uh, we're, we're okay here we're going to get away with this he has you in his sight you can't hide from him he knows your history like he knows the history of the stars and the history of the heavens and not one of us goes missing Jesus said, not a sparrow falls to the ground without your Father in heaven, without him knowing it, without him seeing it. So this is the unimaginable thing. Think about this. God says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my sake, and I will not remember your sins. There's only one thing the Bible says God will ever forget, and that's your sins carried by Jesus Christ. He doesn't forget anything. He traces everything. But when it comes to your sin, he says, no, I forget those. They're gone. They don't exist. So natural revelation is indescribably immense. We, we can't get our minds around it, but it's the little book because it's limited. All it can tell us is that God exists, and that he has eternal power. It is a, it's a picture book. Linda and I were talking yesterday, and she said, oh, it's the wordless book. And I said, yeah, it is kind of a wordless book, but it's a wordless book that's only got two beads. So here's the thing. If, if we weren't sinners, if Adam and Eve had never sinned, if we, we were born without sin, in the full glory of what God intended for man to be and what he created man to be in the beginning, we could look at the universe and we would interpret it exactly right. 
But because of sin, we interpret it wrong. A picture isn't any good because a picture can, is subject to interpretation and our interpretations can't be trusted. So because sin makes us stupid, we need clear, direct, unmistakable language. That's what we get in the Bible. That's what we get in the Scripture. And so Psalm 19 goes on to say, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. I just want to work quickly through those six statements. There are six titles, six characteristics, and six benefits. The law of the Lord is his rule. It is his absolute standard for all things. It's perfect because he's perfect. It's inerrant because he cannot be wrong. It's infallible because he cannot make a mistake. And it restores our soul. That's something that no human power could ever do. If you could take all of the energy in the universe and focus it on one individual at one point in time, all of that would be helpless to help that person at all. But the word of God restores us. Because it's his word, it tells us who he is. It tells us who we were created to be. It tells us why we got to be the way we are. It reveals our sins in detail. It calls us to repent. It shows us a gospel to believe and a savior to trust. It tells us why the gospel exists in the first place and what the Lord Jesus will do in our lives when we trust him. The testimony of the Lord is what God has to say to us in this life, in this life. Now, is there more for God to say? Yeah. God is infinite. This book has 1,289 chapters, the way that Protestants divide it up. There's a limited number of words. There's a limited number of sentences and, and letters. God is infinite. God has infinitely more to say. I think that there's a greater distance or greater difference between what God says in, his, in the word today and what he will say to us in eternity than there is between the, the word of God now and the heavens. And there's a vast difference between the heavens and the scriptures. But here's the thing. In this world, in this life, for now, we have his word. It is his testimony. This is what he is saying to us in this world, in this age. This is what's true. This is what he has given to us. Because God is sure, because God is trustworthy, his word is sure. His word is trustworthy. So it's amazing that people say and people have said to me i don't want the bible i want a fresh word listen if jesus came and stood before us right now what he would say to you would not differ from this text of scripture and it would not have any more authority than his word does that's not because the lord jesus has no authority it's because he's invested his authority in the scriptures so that you know him so that you can follow him so that you can recognize his voice. So that when you hear people on the radio or on the internet, when you read articles, as you measure what I say to you, you can go to the word and say, Lord, is that true? And know whether or not it's true. Not based on some inner impulse, but based on what he has said and sealed for you by the Holy Spirit. 
The precepts of the Lord are right. They rejoice the heart. The precepts of the Lord are his instructions about every aspect of life. It's what he has told us, the details he's given us about everything that we need to know. So uh, Jesus doesn't just say pray when his disciples in Matthew 6 say, Lord, teach us to pray, or Luke, but in Luke, Lord, teach us to pray. He doesn't say, well, just pray. He says, well, pray like this. And, and then he doesn't give them a prayer to recite, but a model to follow. Likewise, when he answers the question, how can we have peace in the church? How can there be peace and, uh, and, and solid relationships in the church among, among believers? The scriptures don't say, be nice to each other. Ephesians 4 says, tell the truth. Don't let anger fester. Don't steal from each other. Be generous. Speak words of blessing. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Stop being bitter. Be kind and tenderhearted. Forgive one another because you're forgiven and walk in love. See, it gives you details. It gives you details. You can trust the instructions that God gives. They'll do good for you. They'll achieve His purpose in your life. Fourth, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The the scripture is the commandment of the Lord. It governs our relationship with him. And in the the prophet Micah, he asked the question, what is good? Or what does the Lord require of you? Well, I'm sorry. See, this is what happens when you don't write the reference down. He has shown the O man, see, I'm thinking of the, the chorus. He has shown the O man what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to love mercy and to help me out and to do justly, and to walk humbly with your God. I, I do this. I forget stuff. So he's told us plainly what to do and what not to do, and his commandment is pure. It doesn't just mean it's, it's, uh, it's good. It means it's unmixed. It's uncontaminated. That means you don't have to go sorting through the scriptures to try and figure out what part is the word of God and what part is the word of man. In the 19th century, the 1800s, German theologians decided that there are four different writers of the Torah, of, the, the, of Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. You've got, the, you've got the J writer. He's the Yahwist, the Jehovah writer. You have the priestly writer. You have Q, like, and I don't know if it's like Q from Star Trek, but you have Q, and that's some weird, and, and it's like Moses was this guy who took all of these sources and just threw it all together, and there's no rhyme or reason to it. And that's caused no end of disturbance to people who believe that and then say, well, do, can I trust this? What do I do with this? Is this really him? As opposed to understanding, it's pure, it's unmixed. You can trust what it says. Will you like what it says? No. If you liked everything God had to say, he wouldn't be God. If you're a sinner like you know you are, and you like everything God has to say, there's a problem. Every culture is confronted by him. His commandment is pure. All scripture is God-breathed. It is all his word to us. And it enlightens our eyes, not our physical eyes, our spiritual eyes. It gives us spiritual understanding. Fifth, the fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. The fear of the Lord is, is an odd statement to apply to the scriptures, but it's a description of the scripture here. It keeps us aware of his authority 
and his right to rule in our lives. Jeremiah 23, that's not Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23 says, Is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? What happens when the wood, hay, and stubble of my life meets the fire of the word of God? Who wins? It's not me. It's the word of God that goes through and burns up the wood, hay, and stubble of my life. What happens when my hardened heart meets the hammer of God's word? It shatters me. It breaks me. And then he uses that hammer not as an instrument of destruction, but as an instrument of construction to put me back together again according to the image of Christ. It never leads me to sin. It never leads me into rebellion. It leads me to a righteous, holy fear of God. To say there is a God and I must give an answer to him. It's the same kind of fear that we should rightly have of our parents. That we want our children to have of us. Not terror, but enough fear to know that there's consequences for bad action. Six, the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Scripture is the judgments of God. God has always judged. He has always differentiated. He's always distinguished. One of the first things he does after he's created the heavens and the earth is to create light. And then it says God separated the light from darkness. He made a judgment. He made a judgment and he separated the land from the sea. He created male and female. He separated them. He made a judgment between Israel and every other nation and he chose Israel. The wicked right now are being separated from God as the elect are being joined to him by the preaching of the gospel. Because God is always true, his judgments are always true. They're always exactly right. They're always exactly on point they don't get any detail wrong there are times i perform prefer more nuance which means i prefer more unclarity more ambiguity i want a little bit more wiggle room but the scripture tends to cut pretty tight and because of that we know exactly where god stands we know exactly where we stand and the judgments of god bring us the benefit of righteousness they're the very definition of righteousness When Jesus says in John 7, do not judge according to appearance, that is what you perceive, what you see and experience, but judge it with righteous judgment. How do we do that? Well, we do that by applying the scripture. Not personal favors, not not preferential treatment, not I, I reject that person because I don't like them personally, but according to what the word of God has said. As we think about bringing this home, David has provided us with the application for this truth. He first gives us his personal response. He says in verse 10 that the scriptures, the, 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 the word of God is more desirable than gold, more desirable than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. You know, as the king of Israel, David was an extraordinarily wealthy, powerful man. He left vast amounts of gold and silver uh, for Solomon to use to build the temple. And yet in David's life, there was nothing better than God. And the closest David was going to get to God in that life 
was through the Word of God. David was a man, 1 Samuel 13 says, after God's own heart. In Psalm 17, David is called the apple of God's eye. So there's this mutual love and affection. The scriptures are David's greatest joy on earth because they're the very voice of God in written form. He loves them deeply. There is nothing that you can put in your pocket, silver, gold, precious gems, nothing that's better than the word of God. David knew that. Do we? There is nothing that we can experience, food, drink, sensual experiences, that's better than the Word of God. David knew that. Do we? Those are questions worth asking. David loved the Word because they restored him. He says in verse 11, Moreover, by, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. So the, the Scripture sets the boundary for me. But then he says in verse 12, who can discern his errors? I can't. It's a rhetorical question. Who can discern his own sin? I can't. The word of God does. And, and then he prays right in there to the God who never forgets anything, equip me of hidden sins. Those things that I'm not aware of, those things I can never see, would you take those things away Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Presumptuous means proud or arrogant. Keep back your your servant from proud sins, from arrogant sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I will be acquitted of great transgression. David submitted himself to the word of God as he submitted himself to God and said, because of everything that your word is, because of their sweetness and their wealth to me, Lord, would you keep me holy? Would you keep me righteous? Would you keep my eyes fixed on you? And and God did. He let David wander. He gave David his head sometimes, as you would with a horse. He kind of let him run sometimes. He let him go to Bathsheba. He let him do the other things that David did. But the Lord always pulled him back. David never lost this foundational desire and love and hunger for the word of God. The more time and honor we give the word of God, the better it is for us. You can't read it too much. We, you certainly don't read it too much. We can't value it highly enough. This understanding of the enormity of heaven that tell of the glory of God and declare the works of his hands, his, his savoring of the word of God, his investment in his own life by taking in the scripture, his, his experience with the word of God as being sweeter than honey, of seeing the, the moral value, the character value, the role of the word of God in truth and in identifying sin and bringing him back to the Lord in repentance and confession is all summed up in this statement in verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, that is, my thoughts, be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. His, His understanding of the weight and the power of God's word is what lets him close this psalm with this very personal statement. There's two really personal statements in here. The other things apply to every single one of us, but 
I, I want the Word of God to be sweeter to me than sometimes I think it is. As he says in verse 10. And I want the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart to be acceptable in the sight of God. In order to do that, I have to do what David did, which is to surrender to the word of God as I surrender to the person of God. Let him govern my life through the instructions that he has given, the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandment, the fear, the judgments that he has given. David could ask that his words and thoughts be acceptable because he was surrendered. Father, as we think about these words, as we think about the the psalm, I ask that you would, by your spirit, convict us of our failings regarding your word. And of the, the... casual way we take your creation and convict us Lord too of the truth and the power and the authority of your word and of the absolute power and authority of the heavens they don't say much but what they say they say loud and clear you know each of our hearts. You know the things that we're afraid of and the things that we're attracted to. You know the things that we long to have and the things that we're we're afraid of experiencing. Jesus said it's a wise man who hears his words and acts on them and believes them and does them. And I ask that you would make us wise men and women who surrender themselves happily and willingly to what you have said. Our world argues against it. We're going to drive away from here this morning and get up tomorrow morning and and enter a, a world that has just almost nothing to do with your word, it, it takes personal discipline and it takes a, a devotion to you. And I ask that by your spirit, you would give us that, that you would have mercy on us, have pity on our weakness and our frailty and keep us close to you. We thank you for this time this morning. We lift up those who are not with us and ask that you would bless them and strengthen them and keep them close to you today that you would glorify your name through us this week, that we would be like the heavens. We would be declaring your glory and the work of your hands. And we thank you, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.